Blog Talk Radio. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as tired as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Cancer Show, Matthew Zachary. Monday, July 20th. And we are once again live on the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adults with cancer. We are your friendly neighborhood weekly social webcast, finally giving that voice to nearly 5 million young adults affected by cancer. This broadcast is a program of the I Am Too Young for This Cancer Foundation, a national leader in the fight against cancer, working exclusively on behalf of survivors and their care providers under the age of 40. Got cancer under 40? Suck, huh? Well, get busy living, because the stupid cancer show is on the air. Welcome to tonight's broadcast, my friends. We are here to change the world, one chemo infusion at a time and share all of our collective crapness. Now call me a hippie, but do not call me a victim. Because I don't believe that change is possible if you never disrupt and challenge the status quo. I am still here, and you are still here, and this, this is why we fight. Forget the cure. That's right, you heard it here first. Forget the cure. Survivorship is all that matters. So welcome, my friends, to the Stupid Cancer Movement, because we're here to stay, and the couch is comfy. You see, here in Stupid Cancerland, we're not just about the quantity of your life, we're about the quality, too. Why? Because there's more to the cure than just research. Research, research, research. They need to cure cancer for Gen X, Gen Y, whatever that means, is only going to come from within our own ranks. Are we on our own? Well, I say as I always do, that if we are the generation that invented Google, Facebook, Twitter, and kept Sanjaya on American Idol all those weeks, we should be able to take care of our own. This is Generation Cancer, and it is our fight and our duty. We have the sheer numbers, the voting power, and the influence to change the rules, because permission is no excuse for cure, and survivorship is all that matters. Last week's show, Cancer versus the Environment Cage Match, which, with uh, Jamie Reno in our Survivor Spotlight, young adult survivor of lymphoma, author of Hope Begins in the Dark, singer, songwriter, musician, and contributing artist to the I2Y Benefit CD, Volume 2, Shannon Fisk, environmental attorney of the National Resources Defense Council, and Dr. Janet Gray, professor of psychology, 
Director of Science, Technology, and Society Program at Vassar. And tonight's show, Art of Survivorship. In our spotlight, Jesse Hershkowitz, a.k.a. Herbalist, young adult survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, rap artist, songwriter, and contributing artist to the I2Y Benefit CD Volume 2, Christina Felice, young adult survivor of breast cancer, artist, photographer, and website Christine Felice, I'm sorry, Christine Felice Photography, website ChristinaFelice.com, Seth Eisen, young adult survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma, visual artist, performer, educator at Eisen Art. So, hello my friends and welcome to get another fun-filled and exciting romp through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show. And a stupid cancer welcome to all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network, coming at you live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a 13-year young adult pediatric brain cancer survivor. Hello to everyone in tonight's chat room. Uh, normally joining me live in the uh, Chemo Deck here will be our chief cancer anarchist, Jack Buffard. But for the first time in a, quite a while, we are Jack Buffardless tonight as he is participating in the first descent retreat in Oregon. Uh, and every now and then he's sending tweets about how he's tipping himself over in a kayak. So we can revel in the fact that he's at least getting drenched uh, in the, uh, some river somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. But Jack will not be monitoring our live concurrent interactive chat room tonight. So if you have something to say to him, he will ignore you because he ain't here. However, in his place, as the substitute Jack tonight, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the live studio audience here, the great, powerful, and phenomenal Tommy Waters. Hello, world. Yes, my name is Tommy Waters, but tonight, and tonight only, you can call me Blackjack. Blackjack. The Blackjack is here. Do I have any funk music queued up? I don't think so. <laughs> this would probably be the opposite of funk music, but what the hell. We're going hopping. We're going hopping. Tommy Waters. Hopping. All right, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, as always, it is my esteemed pleasure... Uh, to introduce my official partner in crime here on the Stupid Cancer Show, hailing from the windy city of Chicago, uh, fellow young adult survivor and author of the acclaimed book, Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s, the lovely, talented, blogtastic, and spectacular Carol Rosenthal. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Carol. I look forward to that every week, you know. Oh, I'm so glad. It's like we've become signature, uh, I don't know, whatever the expression is. Well, if, if there's an expression that you don't know, I can guarantee you that I do not know it. I was going to say, like, just beacons of archetype, but that probably doesn't really sum it up. It's our little... It's our little key phrase, a little tagline, a little hello, Matthew. But you know, no one does it quite like you, and you know, not even the Seinfeld, you know, hello, not, not, not good enough. Yours is so much better. Speaking of Seinfeld, I saw the new Woody Allen movie this week featuring What's it called? Larry David, Whatever Works. Okay. So obnoxious and hilarious. I loved it. I recommend it to anybody who is a tie holler and High tolerance for assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yep. Oh wait, I'm getting I'm getting a quick uh, cue here that um, uh, where is it? Uh, Yosef Eliezeri is in the chat room, so I'm obligated to play our uh, horror music, but I'm trying to find it. So uh, 
let's let's just keep chatting, and as I find it, I'll just cut away to the horror music. Okay, that sounds good. You're okay. good at multitasking here. Chatting. I found it. Wait. There we go, Yosef. Here we go. Here we go. This is for Yosef. Because you're in the chat room, we love you. I hope this satisfies your craving. There you go. <laughs> okay, Carol. Sorry about that. That's fine. That's fine. I like a little horror here and there. Uh, so, all right. So, um, did Larry David do Woody Allen proud? He did Woody Allen better than Woody Allen. Really? He was great. He was great. I mean, he was full of so much angst and neuroses and, you know, middle-of-the-night freakouts that he's dying and existential angst. And I loved every moment of it. And, of course, he's bending down somebody who's like, you know, 50 years younger than him. You can right. see that in a good Woody Allen movie. So. Got it. Yeah, it was great. Cool, cool. I've been blogging, like, not blogging, I've been tweeting all week these crazy stories. Um, and I know you get them all, but um, all these—I don't know if you read the uh, that um, the hormone re- replacement put, thing that I put out there. That it's like now there's a whole new crazy controversy about it once again. Tell me about it. Um, it pretty much circulates around the uh, well. There was a video that Sanjay Gupta did about it, um, <clears throat> which talks about how they're rediscovering that it is potentially that much more bad for you than they originally thought, but at the same time, it does save people's lives. So it goes back to that, what's the cure worth to you argument? Hmm. So what's what's the science on it? I mean... See, that's where you come in, because I just just call them out, and then you tell me if I'm an idiot or not. That's all I want to know, is like, where's the science? You know, there's another, like, big uproar... This week, because the New York Times came out with an article, and this is something that you and I have been talking about a lot, Matthew, about um, early detection campaigns. And, right. of course, there's you know Representative Wasserman from Florida who has um, put out legislation for the early detection campaign for breast cancer and they were in, in young adults. And they were also singling out the Light of Life Foundation, who's a great organization, and we've had them here on the show. They're a thyroid cancer organization, and they've uh, sponsored and created this fantastic Check Your Neck campaign. And so the New York Times was saying, but where's the science behind whether or not these actually make a difference? You know, actually I think the New York Times was saying this is all a bunch of fluff, you're scaring people. And what I want to know is where's the science behind it? I really do want to know where's the science behind is early detection of thyroid cancer going to change survival rates? Is it going to change quality of life? I feel like I can't make a judgment one way or another without knowing where the science is. And I think that that's true for any kind of healthcare decision. We have to be super careful that we don't get swept away with headlines or even a newspaper's interpretation of buzz of evidence, but that we look at it and interpret it for ourselves. Now, you were on uh, the, um, the group room this Sunday talking about this very stuff, correct? Indeed. I was talking with um, Dr. Tuttle, who is my endocrinologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and he's a brilliant man. And, um, yeah, I was saying, you know, show me the science on this. I think it's really important that we look at each different cancer type as its own disease. And just because early detection and screening and something like colon cancer and getting colonoscopies is so important. It doesn't mean that it necessarily translates equally into thyroid cancer or other kinds of cancer. Um, so I think it's you know 
important to to look at all of the facts and details and that as cancer patients we want to do so much and we want to help others to not fall down the deep pits that we've fallen down, but I think it's really important that we're strategic in, in what we do and how we're choosing to focus our campaigns and our public awareness. And again, I'm not saying that the, the Light of Life Foundation was incorrect in making these gorgeous um, check-your-neck PSAs. I'm just curious about some more of the, the science behind the choices for needing early screening for thyroid cancer. So you said that our chairman, Dr. Leonard Sender, chimed in on the show this Sunday and that it got it got interesting. Oh yeah. Lenny is so much fun. He chimed in with, he chimed in with a is there a pharmacy conspiracy behind this? <laughs> yeah, that sounds like him. Which is a good I mean it's a good question to ask. Um I think it's always important to notice when organizations are getting funding from pharma companies I don't think that automatically is a negative. I think it's important to notice it and question what kind of grant money there is and is it restricted or unrestricted? Is it for educational purposes? Um, so, you know, it's a good question to ask. Yeah, I mean, at, at, and at the same time, this goes back to I had like a, a minor breakdown this morning just because I saw some people's tweets about, you know, let's fight cancer. And I, I don't know, just something snapped inside me and I, I had the need to just, you know, vent for the first time in quite a while, about I'm I'm sort of sick of the cancer semantics that are out there, but at the same time, is that really what keeps the general public, who are generally not that aware, like they're not in the loop like we are to that extent, but is do we need those semantics to at least keep them remedially engaged? Things like beat cancer, fight cancer, cure cancer, step on cancer, fuck cancer, like are those? That's just rhetoric in my brain. None of it really means anything because. It just makes me think that everyone else thinks it's one disease and you flick a switch and they're all gone. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, my question is what do we want to make people aware of? That awareness of cancer is not enough. You know, what is it that we want to make people aware of? Do we want to make people aware of the fact that 60% of cancer mortalities could not occur if we had greater access to health insurance. Right. We want to make people aware of, for example, thyrogen. That's it's an extremely specific drug. It's made by a company called Genzyme, and it's used for thyroid cancer patients who, um, in the past, we all had to go off of our medication in order to receive treatment, which is a heinous, uncool experience for some, I mean, other people kind of walk through it like a little cakewalk. But for me, me personally, going off my medication for my thyroid cancer treatment sucked. And so they, Genzyme has supported a lot of different education uh, projects and awareness campaigns for thyroid cancer. But I think that's a good thing because I think there are a lot of patients that don't know that they can ask their doctor for this shot, albeit in $1,800 shot that is sometimes covered by insurance and sometimes not. Right. I think it is really important to let patients know that these things do exist, just like when Jamie Reno was on our show last night and talking about radioimmunotherapy and what an incredible cure it was for his cancer, and it's something that a lot of patients don't know about. And so I think we have to be quick to, uh, we have to we have to not leap so quickly to pigeonhole pharma is always the enemy. Um, are their tactics smarmy? Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
are they operating in the free market that we've created? Indeed they are. And so, you know, I guess to answer your question, I think what we need to make people aware of is I think before we talk about making people aware of anything, we need to figure out what our priorities are. Um, the goal is not awareness. But the goal is finding out what priorities are to either extend life, treat cancer, cure cancer, prevent cancer, and we need to create priorities and then make people aware of our priorities. But I think sometimes what we do is we just leap towards awareness without thinking about what the priorities are to begin with. And awareness in and of itself is not really, what, what is that? It's nothing. Yeah, and, and before I cut away to the news, I guess my, my final thoughts on that are it just, you're right, we have to figure out what it is we spe- specifically want the public to know but like any cause, everyone always struggles with what the public is going to be receptive to, what they're going to digest, what they're going to convert, and how they're going to take action against certain things. And the lowest hanging fruit is always let's cure cancer. And if allowing them to think that there's just one magic pill out there that we're searching for helps engender donations and participation, I can reconcile that while still being frustrated on the other end of the equation. Well, I think that the the general mistake in our country is that we allow the general public to be stupider than they need to be. <laughs> and I, I think that we dumb down the message. I think that we create dumbed down messages for the sake of creating something that we think that people can consume. And I think that that's a mistake. I think that we really need to look at what our scientific goals and priorities are and then take that message to the public. And I think that, you know, you can't have an organization for the sake of having an organization. You need to have it be something that actually achieves something real. You can't have a social media campaign for the sake of having one. It needs to be something that directly relates to improving the lives of cancer patients. You know, it's for any facet of the the nonprofit or public awareness world, I think, you know, I think the key is, and I'll say it again, what's the science? You know, what does the science tell us about where we need to go, where we aren't? now and then how do we make priorities about that and then create a great very useful call to action well on that note let me get out of the news here and uh we'll get to our first guest and continue the conversation sound good sounds lovely all righty and now the news hello i'm kent brockman and this is i on cancer just the facts ma'am Alrighty. During this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we announce worthy news stories to our adoring listeners who inform them about the latest and greatest in young adult programs, actually free young adult programs, services, events, projects, and other stuff. If you have an upcoming program, event, service, or press release that you'd like to hear broadcast during this segment, fax it to us at 646-861-2565 or send it to Jack Ruffard at Jack at i2y.com. And since Jack's not here tonight, I'll kick off the news, read a couple of things, turn it over to Tommy to read a couple of more things for you. Hello, everybody. So let, me, let me breeze through these first, okay. and then we'll get to you. All right, I'm going to kick off the cancer retreats, but I know you guys love to go to these things. Planet Cancer has a 25 to 40 retreat August 21st in Austin and an 18 to 25-year-old retreat in October in Boston. So be sure to get yourselves to planetcancer.org and, um, or contact retreats at planetcancer.org. Again, mid-August, August 21st, 22nd, 23rd in Austin for 25 to 40-year-olds, and October 23rd, 24th, 25th in Boston 
for 18 to 25 year olds. Camp Make a Dream is having a heads up conference in August. No dates provided yet, but you can go to campdream.org to find that out. They're having an ovarian cancer retreat September 10th through 14th, and a women's cancer retreat October 8th through 11th, campdream.org. First Ascent, where Jack Bufart happens to be right now, having another retreat July 31st to August 6th in Vail, August 14th to August 20th in Garden Valley, Idaho, and August 30th to September 4th in Jackson, Wyoming. Very, very significant organization doing great stuff. Go to firstdescent.org. Cancer Care, as always, the young adult groups, they have active and running or living with cancer, life after cancer, young adults, lots of a parent, young women with breast cancer, young adult individual grief counseling, young adult caregivers, go to cancercare.org or call Julie Larson, 212-712-6173. All right, Tommy, what do you got for us? All right. Do you like to read? I do. Yeah. So how about we try this out? Everything changes. The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your Twenties and Thirties is the book written is the book written by our very own Stupid Cancer co-host Carol Rosenthal. Everything changes, thus the sugarcoating off the young adult cancer experience. It is packed with gripping stories and an unprecedented collection of young adult cancer resources. Everything changes is available wherever books are sold. Visit the website everythingchangesbook.com. Next up, we have 70k.org. That's the word 70k.org. There are approximately 70,000 people aged 15 to 39 diagnosed with cancer every year. For over two decades, there has been little or no improvement in survival for this age group. By signing this bill, you are supporting the Adolescent and Young Adult Cancer Bill of Rights to be established as a standard for care to meet the needs of this underserved population. And that's all I have on this side. That's all you got? That's all I have. All right, I'm good with that. Let me see what we got here. Okay, there's a retreat cancer conference in Long Island at... uh, I should know where this is. Schneider Children's Hospital. I'll be speaking there on um, Monday, August 24th at 2.30 p.m. It's a Monday in August. I will be uh, preceded by Dr. John Fish, program head of the Center for Survivors of Childhood Cancer. And the program is called Facing Forward, the Path of Childhood Cancer Survivorship. You can learn more about it at events.i2y.com. And, uh, all right, this one blew me away. Apparently, there's... um, something at St. Jude's called Break Free from Smoking. Apparently there are young adult long-term survivors who smoke. I'll say that again because it just makes my brain scramble. There are young adult survivors who smoke. And St. Jude's is trying to do something about it with their Break Free from Smoking with the St. Jude's Quit Line and Nicotine Patch. So if you know somebody or happen to be somebody who smokes and as a long-term young adult survivor, first of all, beat yourself to death. And secondly, then call one 877 4 sjquit 1-877-4SJ-QUIT. And I would also encourage everybody to go to vote.i2y.com. That's vote.i2y.com. And leave your comment, a praise, some sort of vilified, horrible thing to say or anything remotely interesting. And your testimonial will be broadcast to the world through the great nonprofit Cancer Fighters Channel 2009. That's vote.i2y.com. And that is tonight's Stupid Cancer News in a World of Bufardlessness. And there we go. 
Hey, I've got one thing to add to that, Matthew. What? Oh, wait. Yeah. Hey, Tommy, where's that thing about Carol's book signing? <laughs> How about that? I knew we forgot it. I could do it. Tommy, look on your first... left. Look on your left. Is there other sheets there? Oh, okay. Oh, my God. He missed a whole bunch of stuff. What'd you miss there? Okay, cancerreallysucks.org is a team website sponsor. <laughs> well, you gotta put the music back. <laughs> more music, more music. Anyway, anyway, here we go. Oop, let's get back. Here we go. You're back on, Tommy. So try this again. Right, you were almost hired, and Jack was almost fired, but you're you're teetering again. Okay, okay, okay. Here we go. Cancerreallysucks.org is a team we- team website sponsored by the nonprofit organization Gems of Hope Inc. With the mission of bringing hope to cancer patients and their families, www.cancerreallysucks.org was designed by Teens for Teens. The site offers strategies on how to deal with a cancer diagnosis in the family and much more. An open chat line is held on the first and third Wednesday of the month from 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Check it out. Next up, the 2009 Cancer Fighters Award. I read that already. Okay. <laughs> Attention, Chicago area listeners. There you go. Mark your calendars. I2I is proud to present a stupid cancer book signing for Everything Changes, the insider's guide to cancer in your 20s and 30s with author Carol Rosenthal. On Wednesday, August 12th, 7.30 p.m. at Women and Children First Bookstore in Andersonville. Enjoy complimentary cocktails and gourmet hors d'oeuvres and connect with others in the Chicago young adult cancer scene. For more information, visit events.i2i.com. All right. I think I got it. I think you got it, too. I'm going to post the link right here in the chat room for everybody to check out Carol in the uh, in her fabulousness at her book signing in Chicago. All right. How's that, Carol? Sorry about that. No problem. All right. I think I, I still think you did a better job than Jack, so we'll keep, we're going to keep him around. Thank you. Jack's going to have me in the next Monday. There's going to be, like, no desk. <laughs> She's going to walk through. We're going to move the office. <laughs> Not tell him. Change the locks. All right. Well, with, with no further ado... It is time for our first guest, Jesse Herskowitz, a.k.a. Herbalist. He's a three-year survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma diagnosed at age 25. Herbalist chronicled his cancer experience in a hip-hop album called Cancerous Flow Lyrical Journal. Herbalist has been an independent artist and producer for 12 years and currently resides and performs in the New York City, New York area, New York City, New Jersey area. He will be part of Cancerpalooza 2009 NYC this fall. Details to follow. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Herbalist, Jesse Herskowitz. Hey, man, how you doing? Hey, bro. How you doing, man? Good, man. How are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How's life been? It's been busy, man. It's been busy. I'm trying to just trying to stay busy. I've got about six jobs, so <laughs> don't you know? Is at least one of them being a musician? Um, yeah. Well, a lot of them, about ninety percent of them, have to do with music and making music. I I do sound, you know, for concerts and in recording studios. But I am I am continuing my own, you know, my own career on the side as well. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. So the song we're going to play your song in a minute, and the song is more pretty probably one of the most self-explanatory songs that are out there. <laughs> but uh, walk us through what it was like to be 25 and uh, get diagnosed out of the blue. Well, I mean, it was scary. It was really scary. I was I walked in. I was living in Atlanta at the time, and um, basically I went to bed one evening feeling fine. You know, I didn't have any weight loss or any kind of 
symptoms like that. You know, I just went to bed one night and woke up the next morning with a broken arm. I woke up the next morning literally not able to move my arm. The, uh, the I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma of bone, so there was a tumor growing in my right arm, which uh, got big enough and was growing in such a position that it just cracked it cracked the bone. So I woke up. And I went to the ER um, in Atlanta where I was living, and they saw, you know, otherwise healthy-looking 25-year-old, you know, kid walk in. They misdiagnosed it. They didn't even x-ray it. You know, they uh, thought it was bursitis and gave me some painkillers, which didn't work. And after further scans and, you know, after the pain didn't go away, it was, you know, they found out it was cancer. And, you know, there wasn't really one of the things that I think, you know, was unique about my thing is there wasn't really a lot of time between when I woke up with that broken arm and when I was, you know, in the hospital picking out what kind of Metaport was going to go in my chest. A lot of people wait a long time, you know, for an accurate diagnosis, and it all just happened so quick. You know, I kind of didn't even react until after it was all over. So you pretty much had the opposite experience. Yeah. You had yeah. the easy pass yeah, I had to, uh, yeah, that sounds really easy. I would have <laughs> much rather woken up with my arm broken from a tumor dislodging the bone. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Man, yeah. you had it yeah. so easy. But, you know, <laughs> I actually I do want to let you know that you're not alone. I've actually met a lot of young adults who it's like it, it just it is like what you're talking about, and that there are no symptoms, and then like suddenly it's like before you can get the word out of your mouth, you're like inpatient chemo, and you know I think it's another signpost of what happens to to young adults when yeah. doctors I mean, don't. It's definitely not the easier route, you know. You trade convenience for pain, basically, but uh, you know it. It either way, you know, I ended up. I'm glad I ended up where I ended up, and um, you know, I was I was pretty much like you said, getting treatment, you know, within a week and a half, two weeks time. So we got it, we got on the ball pretty quickly, which was a good thing. So when when did you? How old were you when you started to do music stuff? I'll put it as blatantly, blatantly as that. <laughs> I, well, I, I mean, I started rapping when I was in high school. Um, it started off just you know freestyling with friends, and then. I started writing stuff, you know, when I was a junior in high school and with a bunch of my friends, you know, put together quote-unquote demos, which was basically us plugging a microphone into a boombox and recording onto a, a tape, which we were overdubbing of somebody else's album. But uh, um, I don't know, I, it just kind of snowballed from there. I went to college and ended up getting, you know, randomly assigned in a room with another, you know, you know, up-and-coming rapper, MC from New Jersey, and we started putting together music in a little bit higher quality studios, you know, and it just it pretty much snowballed. We spent six years. I spent six years out in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, pretty much very involved in the underground scene, opened up a recording studio, started to collaborate and, you know, cater to uh, pretty much all of the up-and-coming uh, MCs and rappers around there, and then from there we, I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, which is where I was living when I was uh, diagnosed or when my arm broke. And uh, there I was doing pretty much the same thing. You know, I opened up a recording studio. I felt like Rhode Island. I had really done everything I needed to do. I felt like I was walking around in circles, performing in the same places, and not really going anywhere. So I just decided to up and move with no contacts or anything like that. 
down to Georgia, which is where hip hop is really alive right now. A lot of people are are getting you know contracts and signed out of and uh, just making music that's being heard. Well, actually, I want to get to your track because one of the things I, I'm always a huge fan of is, as I am a musician and a survivor, is finding other musicians and survivors and asking them if they have any one particular song that they wrote that was special and mostly influenced by their survivorship. And this entire album was written because you were diagnosed with cancer, correct? Correct, correct, yeah. After um, after finally definitively being told that I had cancer and what kind of cancer it was, I ended up coming up with the idea that I would write a 10-song album which in which every song was about cancer and about... Because it's not, you know, there's a lot of different emotions that go on. And uh, so I decided to do an entire album about it instead of, you know. All right, well, let's uh, let's cut away to this song. This is called The First Five Days. Yep. Yeah. It's your boy, Herbalist. You know every story has a beginning. But it's the first five days of mine. Five days to find out that I had cancer Five days that I looked to find an answer Five days to find out that I had cancer Five days, these are the first five days Five days to find out that I had cancer Five days that I looked to find an answer Five days to find out that I had cancer Five days First five days When the pain first started I could hardly notice On my right arm A slight arm But I was largely focused I couldn't I wouldn't let it Impede on my speed Motion Deep devotion Day one All I needed was three Motrin Shots of the weed smoking And the speculation And confusion Jump conclusions With no hesitation Must have slept on it wrong Worked for way too long The pain ain't gone Just getting worse Way too strong I fight back Put on an ice pack And go to work Cause when the rent's due Landlords go and I'm no fool, yeah, I know that I'm old school brethren So with an injured arm, I engineered a pro tool session What could I be facing? Shoulder dislocation? I was afraid straight up and down, that's not a misquotation When day one was done and I slept and snored On scale of one to ten, my pain rated less than four It's five days to find out that I had cancer Five days that I looked to find an answer Five days to find out that I had cancer Five days, these are the first five days. Five days to find out that I had cancer. 
answer Five days that I looked to find an answer Five days to find out that I had cancer Five days, and yo, first five days On day five, I find out I don't like the answer X-rays show that I might have a type of cancer So what's next? Every medical test possible My cousin Dennis helped get me placed in the best hospital I didn't know which cancer could be more or less probable But I knew that chemotherapy would be my next obstacle The rest of day five was spent by making appointments Including one for surgery, which was a major annoyance They did a biopsy, which came back malignant I was devastated, this event was cataclysmic Now I could give up a hope, but no, not me I've been to places so dangerous that most cops flee not afraid and I ain't choosing to spare tonight Even if I'm nauseous all day and losing my head In only three days my chemo treatment starts up hurt But either way I've got the heart to make it mark my word It took five days to find out that I had cancer Five days that I looked to find an answer Five days to find out that I had cancer Five days, these are the first five days Five days to find out that I had cancer Five days that I looked to find an answer Five days to find out that I had cancer Five days, these are the first five days Good job, Jesse, as always. Uh, We're out of time here, but just real quick, let people know um, where they can find out more more about you, get your album, are you performing anywhere around town? Um, Yeah, I'm actually um, should be supposed to be performing this Saturday at the Knitting Factory. They're doing a staff infection, and since I'm staff, I'm uh, on the bill, but I don't have any any coverage for uh, work in Jersey that night, so I might miss it. But... um, Aside from that, I, as you said earlier, I'll be a part of uh, Cancer Palooza. I, I just recently performed at a, a couple of Relay for Life events. You can find out more about me on my MySpace page. I know Matt um, posted it in the chat room earlier, but it's uh, myspace.com slash U-R-B-R-I-S-K-I-T-A-L-L-R-E-P. You take care of yourself, my friend. Give my best to your parents and uh, have a great summer. Will that do. was amazing. Thanks and so thanks much. Thanks a lot. Great for, song, yeah, bro. Really, really great. Thanks. All right. Jesse Herskowitz, everybody. All righty. Um, and uh, now it is time to bring out our two guests tonight. Let's uh, cue up the music here. I'm going to introduce two people at the same time. Seth Eisen is a visual and performing artist who has been teaching people of all ages for 15 years, including patients with HIV-AIDS and cancer. Seth's work is a hybrid of contemporary and traditional visual and performing arts disciplines. His installation, Body of Free Radicals, is a reading room that simulates the room he lived in during treatment and recovery from cancer. Okay, Seth is a young adult survivor and also was a caregiver to his brother who died young of melanoma. He is featured in Carol's book, Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 2030s. Christina Felice has been working a working photographer and artist for 20 years. Born in New York City, she earned her BA from Hampshire College in 87, 
pursued a graduate study at NYU ICP in New York in 2009. She moved from Austin, Texas, to Sherman, Connecticut. That's a shift. Where she continues to exhibit on a regular basis, being a six-year cancer survivor. She also volunteers with several cancer-related organizations, and uh, her work can be seen at christinepolicephoto.com. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show my guest, Carol's guest, our guest, Seth Eisen and Christina Felice. That was a hell of an intro. i got to take a breath. Wow. All right, you breathe, Pat. I'll talk. Yeah, you're up, Carol. Go for it. Hi, guys. I'm so glad that you are here with us tonight. And I want to just kind of have this be a conversation between all of us. So I'm just going to toss out questions, you know, to to each of you, and feel free to comment also on answers that you know each other is giving, because I think what's just as interesting as the similarities between both of your work and your process as cancer patients and artists is also the difference, the differences between how you each approach your artwork and um, what we can learn from that. So, you know, I'd love to just dive in um, with Seth if you can just give. You know, a real brief overview of the age that you were diagnosed and what kind of cancer you had and um, where you were in your artistic career at that time. Okay. So um, I was 33, and um, I should just say, too, I just want to preface it, too, that um, this was six years after um, I had lost my brother to cancer. So I was kind of familiar with cancer, but not on a personal level, like ever having, having it myself. And I, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, in terms of my career where I was at that point, um, is I was, um, had been already an exhibiting artist, um, doing visual art and installation art, um, and also a performing artist, performing with uh, various dance companies, doing Bouteau and um, kind of a hybrid of theater and dance. And at the moment that I got diagnosed, I actually was just about to do this really amazing collaboration here in the Bay Area um, with at, uh, with several other artists at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, and it was kind of a big deal, and I had to kind of like let it all go once I got diagnosed. So that's kind of where I was at. School of hard knocks. <laughs> that's yeah. what my mom would say. <laughs> this huge, amazing like performing opportunity, and then all of a sudden, like, guess what? You have cancer. Yeah, it was it was a, it was a very trippy moment for me because I I had just finished my MA in transformative arts and was kind of like looking for an opportunity to kind of like explore how art and transformation um, are related, and there it was. As soon as I wrote my thesis, like next day I was diagnosed. It was kind of amazing. How fortuitous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Christina, tell us a little bit about the age that you were diagnosed at, what kind of cancer, and, and where you uh, were in your artistic career and, and where you are now. All right. Well, I was uh, 37 when I was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer. Um, I had just moved to Austin, Texas. I've been there about three weeks when I got the diagnosis, so I was definitely in transition on many levels. Um and I was sort of floundering, I think, a little bit with my career somewhat. I had been living in Florida for about six years previously and um, doing darkroom work and some portrait work, but having a rather difficult time finding an art scene 
And uh, when the place I was working at went out of business, uh, my then partner and I picked up and moved to Austin to start over again. And I had been uh, fracturing some bones for quite some time um, leading up to that. And uh, it took a few doctors, as you know, it happens with some young people. Took a few doctors uh, and several months for anybody to actually investigate it. And so one thing led to another, and kind of like um, Seth here, sort of fortuitous new beginnings, uh, for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm curious, Christine, if you can talk uh, about how having cancer changed your artwork. I mean, a lot of people said to me, because I was a choreographer when I was diagnosed with cancer, mm-hmm. like, this is a really amazing opportunity for you to make artwork. I kind of wanted to put yeah. actually. <laughs> I hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah, so talk about uh, what what the opportunities are, good, bad, or otherwise, that having cancer presents to you as an artist. Uh, I can't say it's necessarily changed my art all that much, um, at least not in any overt sort of way. Um, I think... Uh, it's perhaps made me a little bit bolder and willing to take a few more risks than uh, perhaps I had been earlier. I've been playing it a little bit safer. Um, I'm not sure if part of that is a little bit of just, you know, a certain amount of maturity, but, uh, you know, when somebody tells you you have stage 4 cancer, you realize you don't have a whole lot of, you know, as much time left perhaps as you thought you did, so it kind of tends to light a fire under you. Um I struggled with trying to, you know, figure out how to incorporate that whole experience into my work, though, so, and I still struggle with it a little bit even now, six years later. Um, Christine, I'm having just a little bit trouble hearing you. If you're able to speak up a little bit louder, that would be helpful. Sorry, is yeah, this better? Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's better. That's better. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting what you said, I think, is an issue for so many people who are young adults, no matter what their career is, is that... Are our careers changing because of cancer? Because maybe we're just getting a little bit older and maturing more. These right. two things yeah. coincide. Mm-hmm. Well, I think they overlap. I think, um, you know, you can't ever say what it would it be like if I didn't have cancer. Would I be in the same place? Would I be doing the same work? Um, probably not. No, I probably wouldn't be. Um, some of my more recent work has been, uh, one of my most recent projects was, definitely fueled by the cancer experience in terms of being motivated to go do it. And what was that project? That was the Chernobyl series. Um, I traveled to Ukraine last summer and photographed the exclusion zone around the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. And um, Are you glowing right now? Are you magnetic? <laughs> People always ask me that. <laughs> um, no more than I would be from treatment. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So, yeah, <laughs> no extra glowing. Just a lovely green orb. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I think uh, that sort of came onto my radar a little bit more so because of you know the fact that I do have cancer and I had been reading a lot about young people um, in Ukraine who suffer largely from thyroid cancers uh, as a result of Chernobyl, and um, and as I started reading more about it, I became more and more interested in it, and also being a bit of a advocate somewhat volunteer advocate and and you know with other cancer patients I I wanted to be able to contribute something to to them over there too so um, 
When you show your work to the general public, do you let them know that you are a cancer patient, or is that something that you keep more private? Funny you should ask that. Um, I had a show recently, just last month, uh, just after I moved here to Connecticut, um, out in uh, a gallery in Hudson Valley area in New York. And um, (laughs) in my artist statement for the Chernobyl project, I had mentioned that I was a cancer survivor. I didn't get into details about, you know, being stage four or any of that, but... um, and so there was a Q&A uh, Q session afterwards. It was a projection series. And so the, the gallery director was asking questions in front of an audience. And first thing they asked me was about the cancer. <laughs> and I kind of I had some second thoughts about whether I should put that in there. That's something I'm still struggling with. I, was, I kept it quiet for a very long time because initially, initially I, I was fairly open about it. And I found that um, overall people focus more on the cancer than they did on my artwork, and I really didn't want that. Mm. So um, it caused some problems for me. Yeah, I, you know. For me Could that possibly be used to your advantage in a sense? Like, um, I mean, I'm, an, I'm a musician too, and I, these days mm-hmm. less people know that I'm a concert pianist and I'm a cancer advocate, and they look right. at my music as like, this is for Matt the cancer guy, not Matt the mm-hmm. concert pianist. Right. I guess I've had to reconcile that, but I'm using it to my advantage to as as more of a platform in a sense. I, I guess I, I can't. I'm not on the same page as you, but I had to go through that. Yeah, I think it took me a little longer. It's something that I'm just kind of coming into now. Um, and oddly enough, just moving to Connecticut and once again starting all over again. Um, you know, I've I've done things a little bit differently uh, coming here than I did when I started in Austin. Um, but then again, you know, I've been living with it for a few years. I've had a chance to grow into it and to incorporate it all into who I am and, and the work that I produce. So, But, yeah, I'm still feeling my way through it, definitely. Beth, I'd love to hear more about how out you are or not about <laughs> your cancer and the work that you make. And I'm really curious in hearing more about Body of Free Radicals and, and what it was like for you to make that. Okay. Um yeah, it's interesting hearing Christina because I, I yeah, my experience is a, it's a little bit different. Just in that, um, I felt like you know when I was diagnosed, I really had to let go of my identity as an artist, um, or somehow it just kind of disappeared. You know, it was, you know, like I was really on a roll there too. It was like God, so much was happening with my work. I mean, it was like having shows all the time, and I really felt like I was building something. It, it was becoming more apparent and then it was like I pretty much had to take like a year and a half off and not do anything and um, and really kind of figure out you know my identity was all really based on <clears throat> you know the big project which was healing and um, and that was really interesting because it allowed me a kind of uh, you know a way of sort of turning off one of the channels of my my inner television you know just like okay, well, we're not going to pay attention to this, the career and the ambition, you know, at the moment. We're just going to, like, kind of turn inward and work on this project. So I didn't really even think... The project being staying alive? Yeah, the project was staying alive. Yeah. Yeah. Once I sort of... Minor Once I sort of... Yeah, right. Once I gave up the, you know, like, sort of let go of that, the the commission that I was supposed to be doing and, like, let go of that, I was, like, kind of... I felt, like, kind of freed by it. Um, 
And then it was so difficult for me to start actually making work again once I was totally, you know, cancer-free, you know. Um, I actually was, like, in therapy for a while trying to figure out, like, what do I do? How do I, how do I like, make a mark? Because it just felt like, uh, you know, there's this experience. I don't know, Christina, if you went through anything like this, but, like, just going through yeah, treatment <laughs> was so radical for me. I really felt like a child, you know, like I had, it was kind of like a rebirth. I don't know if that mm-hmm. sounds too new agey, but it no, just—it literally felt like I was being reborn, you know, like I had to kind of reinvent myself. And, um, and it wasn't easy, you know, so I started really small, started going back to the studio, doing really simple things, visual art, not really performing. Um, and then what really came for me is that sort of door... Hello? Hello? Are you with us, Seth? About how angry I was and oh. how... <laughs> just call waiting. Kind of like venting, you know, like, ah, this really sucks. And and it was kind of explosive. And then when I later on read those, I realized, oh, my God, this is kind of like the doorway into the actual work that's going to happen. And it suddenly, once I got the opportunity to do an installation, the work just kind of all happened. And what I did was I created this, installation called Body of Free Radicals, and the idea behind it was to kind of allow the audience to kind of bear witness to my experience physically and also spatially. So I kind of recreated the cancer room or the healing room that I was in. didn't actually look like it, but, you know, just a room that people could kind of spend time with my writing and then artwork that I created um, in, kind of in some different realms. Some were like more of like the scientific realm of just like being a science project and putting all these drugs in your body. The other was like a feeling realm, which Jesse mentioned. There's just so many feelings, you know. Another was like memory realm because so much came up from my past, like that I was like, uh, you know, sexual abuse from being from childhood came up. You know, it was like so much. Stuff oh, you went to Hebrew school so, too? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Let's all kumbaya yeah, together it now. Was, it was pretty amazing. So the biggest piece that I made though was was actually this um this bed piece and it's you can see it on my website. Um and it's like I recreated my my cancer bed and and on all the sheets, pillows and quilts, I sort of had documentation of um myself going through the treatment and then on the sheets were actually like sheets of of like pages of a book, and uh, all of the emails that I I wrote to myself, I sort of edited down to some of the best um, quotes, and you know, sort of put it onto the you know, onto the sheets, so it it kind of read like a book, and people could get into the bed and experience it um, by you know, like turning the pages of the book or the bed, if you will. So and it's then, Oh, yeah. Sorry, go, go ahead, Seth. And, and no, no, I was just going to say, like, so there was a series of books, and then the other was sort of like a series of children's clothes, because I was, you know, talking about this experience of feeling like a kid again. So, I'm sorry, what were you going to say, Carol? Well, Seth, it, it sounds like there was a lot of venting and sort of catharsis that catapulted you into this process. I don't know if that's an accurate explanation. Yeah. And, Christina, I'm curious about whether or not catharsis plays any role in, in your making art and artwork. Well, it's funny. I'm listening to Seth, and I'm thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm hearing some similarities, but also seeing a lot of differences. And 
trying to think about why that is because I'm not quite so much in the catharsis thing and it could be partially because I'm just still in the middle of all this you know I'm still in treatment I'm still you know this is an ongoing thing for me so I've always been a rather private person and I can't imagine you know opening up that to the public while it's still ongoing I just I, I, I that you know <laughs> God bless you for doing it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah, most people that I some yeah. differences there, absolutely. And most people that I've talked to, other artists, seem to have that experience of not really relating their art specifically to, um, you know, to their their treatment or whatever they were mm-hmm. going through. I think that's kind yeah. of. I, don't know. Yep. I I think it definitely like I I feel like I got that over with, and now my work is. Not really. I wouldn't really say that it's related to, yeah. you know, except for sort of an, uh, some kind of undercurrent of what I learned in life, you know. I think mine actually is, but it's it's um, perhaps too subtle to catch for a lot of people. Um, even before cancer, I was always interested in. Um, well, I was often criticized for uh, <laughs> being obsessed with death. <laughs> In my work. Um, oh, you went to Hebrew school too. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yep. Um, so it's something that's been a recurring theme, and um, and uh, I haven't shied away from it actually. In um, in what ways does it appear in your work? I guess just give us sort of a visual idea of of what that well, looks like. Oh gosh, it's hard to hard to describe. Um, well, for example, my two most recent um, finished projects were the Chernobyl, and then also I had a black and white series uh, from the American Southwest. But it wasn't wasn't like pretty pictures of the Southwest. It was basically decay, um, forgotten places, um, things that generally are otherwise o- overlooked or in the process of, of death. And, and it's just something that's just always captured me, just um, aesthetically, but also. Um, just thinking about you know who we are as 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 organisms as people um, and and just you know that's kind of hard for me to put into words honestly as I'm a photographer <laughs> but uh, pictures worth a thousand words I think that there's I think that there's a lot of um, how do I put this a lot of things that are overlooked by most people in daily life um, you know because it's either unpleasant or because um, maybe it's not pretty or it, it frightens them for some reason. And, and uh, I've actually become more bold about pointing a finger at those things in recent years than perhaps I was before because I did catch a lot of heat for it <laughs> earlier on. Um, maybe it's just that I, you know, I don't really care anymore <laughs> what the naysayers say. Um, I'm curious about how cancer has affected the business of art for you. I know that I think there's often an assumption that, um, you know, if you have cancer and you're an artist, that you're going to be very out about it. And for me personally, I mean, especially with writing, it was very much the opposite. I did not want my publisher or my agent to know that I had recurrence happening Mm -hmm. um, at the time that my manuscript was due. I didn't want Mm -hmm. to plant any ideas in their head about this is going to be our dead author who we can't promote. (laughs) Um, So I'm I'm curious about how that's been for for both of you with, you know, collectors or curators, um, you know, 
how out you are with them about, about your illness and if you find any discrimination in the, you know, quote-unquote workplace of being an artist. Well, that's one of the reasons I went back in the closet, honestly. Um, you know, when I was first diagnosed, I, I, I don't know, I'm not sure why, but I didn't really make a point of keeping that silent, maybe because it just so overwhelmed my life, I couldn't really, you know, shove it under the rug or manage it as well, um, you know, because I was extremely ill. <laughs> And I didn't have any insurance, and the financial things was, you know, um, devastating. And my body, you know, I had a lot of broken bones, and I wasn't allowed to walk, and things like that. And um, and and I found, yes, it did actually hurt me in a lot of ways. I, I found that um, galleries and collectors, not all of them, but definitely some of them, were sort of thinking, well, you know, this this woman has no career potential. You know, she's dead already. So what's the point? <laughs> and so I was overlooked. Um, on a lot of things, unfortunately. So um, I, I kind of learned from that and decided to keep my mouth shut for a while, and so I did. And uh, I think people kind of forgot about it, especially since I was not dead. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> it's so passe being alive. People. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. It's like, oh, well. <laughs> but, you know, now it's just only only other cancer survivors are, can understand this, I think. But, um just saying that, okay, you know, I was diagnosed with cancer in 2003. I think for most people, the assumption is, oh, well, she must be over it, you know. And I don't necessarily say anything one way or the other. So You let, let the mystery remain. You know, I just let them think what they think. I'm not going to go out of my way to tell, tell people and make it public that, you know, I'm still in treatment and, yes, this is, you know, most likely, you know, <laughs> Obviously, I'm going to be in treatment the rest of my life, mm-hmm. you know, unless there's mm-hmm. some miracle. So um, I don't go out of my way to tell people about that. Um, but on the other hand, I'm not going out of my way to hide the fact that I have cancer either. So, Seth, I'm, I'm curious um, to hear a little bit from you about the business side of, of being an artist and having cancer and if that at all affected the opportunities that you had to make work. And also, I know from interviewing you, um, in my book as well, just uh, there are a lot of issues around health insurance and what it means to have the life of, of an artist and being self-employed, and if you can talk a little bit about that, too. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> um, That's a yeah. nice, great well, answer right yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, yep. I, I guess I would say um, that it, it didn't, I don't really feel like it affected me so much, but I, I was very self-conscious about the fact that, like, on my resume, I had this big block of a year and a half where or two years where there was really no activity. Which can be very so, hard when you're applying for grants and things like that. Yeah, it was, yeah. I, I, you know, and people would ask me about it. I, There were times I lied about it. I just didn't know what to say. And I'm, in fact, I'm sure there were, there were some things that didn't happen for me because I actually was too honest. So what kind of good um, lies did you come up with? Did you make up work that you hadn't actually created, or did you just come up no, with No, I didn't do that. But I... I I just would say stuff like, um, no, I actually was doing some research or I was on retreat, you know, for a year and a half or whatever. I needed to take some time off from my work or whatever. Um, but it didn't really occur to me. But it was really, it was really scary, actually, at first to, to tell people, you know, because I was afraid of being discriminated against. Of course, you know, I mean, you would never think that would happen, but I feel like it it really happens, I mean, majorly, mm-hmm. you know, like once, it's kind of like a curse. I mean, insurance-wise, it feels like a curse. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I haven't really been able to have, you know, real health coverage 
you know, ever since the cancer. It, luckily, you know, I was coming out of a job where I was running an art program um, for people with HIV and AIDS um, right before the cancer. And when I was diagnosed, I was kind of leaving that job. But luckily, the COBRA kicked in, and that kind of covered the the million dollars it cost to get me through treatment. But after that, it's like it's like you're on your own. I mean, nobody wants to cover you. I'm still struggling. If there's anyone out there that can help, I mean, it's just like ridiculous, you know? It's like I've been through so many different, um, you know, like different government agencies trying to get trying to get insurance coverage, but it's like it's like impossible unless you have you know like a full time you know tenure track job in university or you have you know but as an independent artist you know I mean when I teach I'm like contract basis so I I teach all over the place and you know and I try to get my my work is primary to me so um, you know unless I'm running a business, you know, with employees, I can't really get, get coverage. So it's been really tricky for me. And I feel like I definitely feel discriminated against because I had cancer. So, yeah, I, I don't really know quite what to do about that at this point. (laughs) Matthew, do you want to chime in? Something's going to shift in the government or something. Well, I got a question. Well, regardless of whether you are a cancer survivor who's an artist or an artist who's a cancer survivor, you will have no control over the way that the country judges you. With that said, do you see this as an opportunity? And if so, what is your message to other cancer survivors about choosing to stay creative, to be creative, and to express themselves? That's a good question. You have to answer at the exact same time, both of you. I think you yeah, need to please. do what you need to do. Um, you know, I, uh, if you're an artist, that's what you are. And, and, and uh, I would hate to think that everybody in the United States says, well, I've got to have a secure office job in some corporation so that I can have insurance because yeah. it would be a pretty boring country otherwise, you know. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. if you've got to take the risk, take the risk, and, you know, hopefully things will start changing, you know, in the near future. That's my two cents on that one. Yeah, I I feel the same way. It's like the art of, you know, survival to me is continuing to do my art. I think I think if anything if I got anything out of the cancer experience it was that it's that, you know, be more fearless. Um life can end at any second. So how do you want it to end? Do you want to end in an office chair in some stupid corporate job that or any job that you hate or in a life that you hate or do you want to be alive actually being, you know, a creative person and thriving, you know, from your work. And, you know, I, I'm choosing the latter for the moment. Yeah. I can't imagine not, you know. I mean, to me, that's my survival is really based on on being able to do my work. Yeah, I hear you. I'm the same way. Absolutely. And I I just want to chime in with the emphasis that, you know, that it's a choice around how to live your survival, I guess, and recognizing that it's a possibility that you won't survive. You know, there's a fantastic installation sound artist who is in my book, and he made that choice. Um, He was looking at, you know, I can either go back to, like, well, not go back to, we've never had a square office job. You know, I can go get some kind of job where I'm going to get full health insurance or not. And he didn't and was unable to have a stem cell transplant, and he died. And so I think it's important when we talk about these choices that we're making about what is a fulfilling life to lead, that we're very realistic about what the risks 
versus benefits are because where we're at with healthcare in this country, it's a very um, real circumstance in which we are making the choices about how how to live. Um, an extremely important decision. Absolutely. Yeah, there there are serious. <laughs> Serious consequences. It's it's not you know it's not just a cliche to say you know live for what's important in your life, but you mm-hmm. really you really might be living or dying based on what is or isn't mm-hmm. important in your life. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think you can make that call until you're there though either. Um, yeah, I you agree. Can say, you can say, well, you know, if this happened to me, I would do this, that, or the other thing. But I, I don't think right. you really know until you're there. <laughs> you just yeah. don't know until you're there. Well, you know, we call it art of survivorship that someone had met briefly. I mean, I, I can't claim that I invented that term because someone <laughs> said it to me nonchalantly like six years ago and I just repackaged it. But the art of survivorship in and of itself as a euphemism is just like it applies to anything. But when you are a creative person or a cultural creative and something tragic happens to you, the art of your survivorship is really how you choose to live your life going forward, whether it's for a day, a week, a month, or a year. And I think what you guys have done is a testament to that, whether you feel the artist's plight, which you would feel anyway because you're a tortured soul, like every artist is a tortured <laughs> soul. You know, that's just, that's just, you know, that comes with the territory. But what it represents to the greater picture of how people can make better decisions to live their lives on their terms is the most meaningful outcome that I can see to benefit any other person going through similar crap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, agree. But, I think it's, it ties into the whole just idea of quality of life in general, yeah. whether you have cancer or not. <laughs> yeah, but Christina, like what you were saying before, it's I think it's, you know, you don't really know what's, I mean, if, you know, there's a, there's a possibility, you know, that I could get other cancers from, from all the mm-hmm. treatment that I had. If that happens or if some other health thing happens to me, I don't really know, I can't say today what I'll do. I know that I'll do my best to live my life artfully, mm-hmm. um, but I, you know it's like you don't really know until you get there. I know that during you know when when all that happened to me, I couldn't do anything creatively, except live creatively, you know, and mm-hmm. try and just just put one foot in front of the other and use it as as a way of kind of research of life. You know, what is it like to feel really old and be really young? Yeah. <laughs> Very well said. <laughs> yes. Feel really old and be really young. Yep. Feel really old. I'm just processing that because I... Yeah, I, I think we're... <laughs> yeah. Because I went to Hebrew school, remember? I was kind of slow. <laughs> <laughs> I've been molested and everything, so, you know, we've got to work through these issues as a processing complex thoughts. <laughs> well, I think part of it, too, is just that, you know, I mean, going through all of you know, just all the treatment, I kind of, you know, I mean, I heard you say, Christina, too, that you were just, you couldn't get out of bed. I really related to that, and, you know, I I couldn't even mail a letter or, you know, do anything myself. I really needed help to even boil an egg. It was kind of ridiculous. Um, But uh, I think that that really, that really fed into, you know, maybe it didn't feed into my visual art, but definitely fed into my performance, because I was feeling kind of like a monstrosity. <laughs> and, um, I actually created several characters that were sort of based on that monstrosity, you know, like with, you could see them on my website. Um, Excellent. I did a look grotesque. on earlier. Yeah, I had, yeah, yeah. it <laughs> grotesque characters and, you know, with 
crazy looking teeth and you know mm-hmm. and people actually respond to that so much it's just that blew me away because i felt like i had permission to actually be ugly because i i felt like i went through a period where i was really gross looking to myself i looked in the mirror and i just was horrifying like the thought that anybody would want to have sex with me or find me appealing in any way um yeah. you know it's just like that weird thing um and I, I feel like I was able to really use that and make characters that were kind of grotesque. And people, I think people want to see that more. They want to see the shadow side. They, they want too. to see. Yeah, I think I know. absolutely agree with you. They do. So for more of the shadow side, I'm wondering if each of you can give your websites out so folks can go check out your work and sort of see what the visual experiences of what they've been hearing you talk about. Seth. Uh, mine is uh, Izen. It's, so it's www dot i z n e y e z e n dot o r g and Christina mine is Christina Felice photo and the last name is F like Frank A L I S E www Christina Felice photo dot com <laughs> there's a plug <laughs> and if any of our listeners want to join in on a discussion of art and survivorship that's what i've been blogging about today check it out and we'd love to hear from you too so thank you guys so much for being here and sort of talking about your your artwork and sort of the interior world of being an artist when you're living with cancer thank you so much thank you guys have a wonderful summer christine felice and seth eisen everybody well carol that was a wonderful show I thought it I thought it was a pretty great show. I love talking to artists and how they make us stop and think about the world beyond crass commercialism. <laughs> I know, so, you get those people that are just so intensely deep about I know cultural how, cleansing and intellectual yeah. cognition and whatever. Like And feeling really old when we're actually really, really young. Yeah, it's it's nice. I don't know. I mean, I talked to my dad. He's like 63. He says he still feels like he's 30. I'm 35. I feel 17. I don't know if that's proportional, but I, I don't ever really feel old until I meet somebody born after Back to the Future was made. Uh-huh. Well, I have an opposite experience. I have to say the first moment that I found out I could possibly have cancer instead of feeling like I was 27, I felt like I was 72. <laughs> I did, and I, I felt like I had lived a pretty complete life, and I was ready to go. No joke. It's like, all right, I'm 72. I'm done. Um, luckily, I'm still here almost 10 years later. But, um, yeah, it's, I, I think age is not just a number, but it's how you're feeling on a day-to-day basis. Not a number, but an attitude. Or a batitude. Or a ba- oh, my God. That's like bromance. You're putting words together. All right. <laughs> like the Sesame Street. Remember the Sesame Street skit? Get it together. Get it together. Oh. Am I alone on that one? No, no, you're on. I'm on. I'm, I'm yeah. thinking of the two-headed monster that like puts words together, where he's like, you know, avalanche, avalanche, and then like a big rock hits him. Oh, yeah, is that the guy with the telephone too that would go? Yes. Boing! <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They, they rocked. They were great. Oily rock. Well, you have yourself a fabulous week, and we'll we'll uh, we'll catch up with you next Monday. You too, Matthew. Alrighty, everybody. Uh, now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, 
To all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, folks. That's tonight's show. I hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Love. I'd like to thank our guests, Jesse Herskowitz, Christina Felice, Seth Eisen, and Tommy Waters here in the uh, chemo deck. Next week, our last show of the season, Stupid Skin Cancer. In our Survivor Spotlight, Therese Bruitt, young adult survivor of breast cancer, singer-songwriter, contributing artist to the Eyes of White Benefit TV Volume 2, Dr. Jennifer Stein, Associate Director of Pigmented Lesion Service, Assistant Professor of Dermatology at NYU Medical Center, and Courtney Clark, young adult survivor of melanoma, Director of Development at Planet Cancer. Sure to be a hell of a show, same bad time, same bad channel. Folks, if you've missed any of our previous shows, check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com or subscribe to our podcast at itunes.i2y.com. And if you don't already have Carol's book, Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s, it is available wherever good, great, fabulous, and awesome books are sold. Remember, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. We'll see you all back here next week for our final show of the season, live from the chemo deck. Carol Rosendahl, Captain Sibby, and I wish you all a great evening. Go to bed, Leah. Fucker out. Brrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr